Tamo. And the gnome. Yes, uh, we are back on the set. And uh... <clears throat> apologies. <laughs> And the gnome. <clears throat> All right. Uh, we've been discussing, off and on, nursery rhymes and fairy tales uh, today. Ain't we, Molly? Hmm. We have. Yeah. Can't recall how we got to this, but, no, but this we, is where we are. We got as far as identifying a, uh, a trope within... Uh, Western uh, European fairy tales um, are of the forest. The forest seems to feature in a lot of these. It seems to be the place where dark deeds and strange things and even magic and the unbelievable can occur. But the forest, man, it, it's <clears throat> like, let's just think, like Little Red Riding Hood, <clears throat> Snow White gets taken out into the forest to cop it from the hunter, but doesn't. Goldilocks. Goldilocks and the three bears living away in the forest. Most of them. Yeah, what's, I can see. what's the one who's asleep for a hundred years <clears throat> and a thicket grows around the tower that she's in and the princess to come and cut that no, down? No, that one's not Snow White. No, this one, she's got like yeah. the, spinning, the spinning wheel maybe. Rapunzel. Anyway. It could be Rapunzel, yeah. Yeah, I'm feeling Rapunzel vibes. She was in she was in a tower. Yeah, but the, the but the forest grew up around her. A thicket in any case. Yeah. Isn't that the one we I don't know, I don't I'm not by the time he got there her, with, no, no, she By the time he got there, her bush was so wild he had to pull out his sword. <laughs> It was a bit of mange. I know, yeah, but it's like generally ask the ladies to do their own grooming, but this man was like, "Madam, let me assist you." Shing shing. That was one sharp sword. Chivalry was not dead then. No, indeed. Um, but uh, I think we started this conversation with Jack. Actually, good old Jack. Mm. Oh, Jack. The Punsy yeah. fella is had, is had to have a pail instead of a bucket, didn't he? Well, I mean, he clearly was incompetent because he couldn't even <clears throat> he couldn't even be trusted to come back with like the sustenance. You sent him out. I mean, I feel like it's a recurring Jack well, well, across the stories. It's the same. It's yeah, the same Jack in the beanstalk. Yeah, Jack, you sent him to the markets. And with you know, with the cow to get some food, he comes back. Not even enough for a dinner. Just five beans. She sends him out for water <coughs> with his sister Jill this time. You know what can go wrong? Well, if I can breaks his head, doesn't he? Everything. Up the hill. They did actually Everything. get the water. Everything going on. Now that's not the only Jack. Hold on. I think when he grow up. He, 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 we find out his name's Jack Spratt. 
Don't know much about Jack. him. Enlighten me. Jack Pratt, he could eat no fat. His wife could eat no lean. Together when the supper came, they licked the platter clean. Him. Oh, that's a shame. We almost had our first four. Oh, th- oh that was. Okay, mate, ringing. The seagull. I thought we agreed on the echidna. I don't think it was a boat. Anyway, clearly Jack uh, had a troubled life. By the time he got old, he had an eating problem, and he, he was obviously a fat bloke who couldn't who couldn't eat fat anymore, or so he thought. Well, Which is a damage. Well, it's, I don't know how true it is anyway, because I eat, I eat uh, a healthy amount of fat in my meat, and I'm a lean fellow. Uh, so it's all about balance, isn't it? Uh, it's all lies, man. Okay, well, maybe focus on the forest. This place where uh, it was still wild and 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 it's magical. Bears lived there, and who really knew how bears lived? Maybe they had. Porridge preferences. I mean, potentially in this fantastic well, imagination. It was demonstrated in the story. They they all had their preferences. That was the whole point of the story. Clearly, the 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 the, the bears were diverse, and they were each different. It's true. Actually, I can't recall. was it the was it the big bad was it the big dad bear that. Liked his hot. Um. Well, his was too hot. Mama's was too cold, and baby bear's was just right. So, yeah. Well, maybe they didn't have a different preference in temperature at all. Maybe they all liked it exactly the same. I don't but think so. Bowl was a different temperature. One chair was too soft, one chair was too hard, and one chair was just right. And it was the same with the beds too, you see. So, no, realistically, what is being presented in this story is uh, a tale about diversity. And that little minx, Goldilocks, you know, she uh, um, she stirs up the trouble, but what she actually learns is that the bears each have their own rich inner world in which they engage with the world around them, their preferences, you know. I like to think that Goldilocks can I like make. it. I like it. I, I like it. I like the way you, the way you framed it. That That's beautiful. See, I always thought it was just a story about a home invasion. And the moral of the story was that 
if you're a little blonde girl, you get away with it. Yeah, I can see how, like, we're, like, several hundred years removed from the audience where it was first targeted. So I think just by virtue of having a girl with golden hair um, being transmitted as a story amongst kids in European marketplaces, um, that's their ticket in to that world because then it goes into the forest and into the bear's house and all of that is just the wild and the unknown. So every child who hears the story learns along and is as curious as Goldilocks and goes along with her. She is their avatar. And in that sense, she doesn't really need to have motive or personality because she's just a means for the audience to engage with that story world. And as such, she seems to have no real agency because why on earth would she go to sleep in the bear's house? Like, how dumb is this kid? I mean, come on. You don't, you don't lay down and go to sleep in a bear's house. I mean, if you're old enough to find the bear's house, you're old to know that's a bear's house. That brings so, me back to the point. Where, where's the story about Goldilocks's negligent family? Ah, you know what I think? I think what that uncovers is an actual freedom around uh, childhood um, uh, from a, a culture bygone. Because in all, of these, in all of these stories, the children have immense freedom. It, it wasn't a precursor to Jack being sent to the market with the cow that his mum was like, all right, now I'm trusting you with the big... It was just like, Jack, take this cow to the market. Like, that was just what was expected. He was just a kid. He's probably 10 years old. And no one's batting an eyelid that he's taking a cow and selling it. And, you know, and when he comes home and has made a poor decision, his mother seems astoundedly surprised, which is to say, you or I wouldn't send our 10-year-old to sell the car, but... Jack gets sent to sell the family's tractor, uh, you know, and uh, all of these kids are wandering around in these stories with immense, what we would call freedom, but that, in fact, is probably an apt reflection of what childhood was like. They didn't have school to go to, so if they weren't working, they had to be doing something. What else were they going to do, man? Freedom and responsibility. Well, it's been argued by some that childhood has been uh, manufactured as a social construct, uh, you know, um, uh, particularly uh, post-industrial uh, revolution, because um, you only have to go back and uh, and look at child labour laws to, and the history of when they come in to see that, uh, you know, the, the concept of... Uh, Childhood was uh, quite um, foreign in Victorian uh, England and the Commonwealth. Uh, it was quite normal for very young children to be working uh, in coal mines and um, shops and farms, stables, and you know, everywhere, anywhere work was doing. There was kids doing it, um, and that was just uh, that was just part of the structure and fabric of society. Um, Certainly before Still we were educating. Well, yeah, so the the argument that childhood is somewhat a, a, a manufactured social construct um, has at least some merit. We certainly embed uh, presuppositions around uh, humans of, of particular ages um, 
and, and I would say with good intentions, um, but they tend to be, at least in these stories that we're looking at uh, right now, um, children are given far greater agency um, than, what, than what we allow them to. Now, this could just be that it's in a story where wouldn't it be wonderful? I mean, George in uh, Roald Dahl's George's Marvelous Medicine gets incredible agency. He's got access to everything in the farm when he makes his marvelous concoction. I don't know if you've read that one, but gosh, that's... Never read that one. That's a mo- Never read George's Marvelous Medicine. Oh, it's fantastic. No. Oh, man. I'll yeah. have to give it a yeah, crack one day. He makes a magic I'll concoction. Put it on the list. It- well, do yourself a favor. It's it's great. Read it. Read it with the girls. Um, they'll they will love it, and you will love it. It's a great story. And in that sense, that the boy in that story is well, he's breaking all the rules when he's doing what he's doing, but he decides he doesn't care. But he's given a great amount of agency, more freedom than what a child normally would have. Uh, and perhaps in the story world, um, that is also an element, um, you know, perhaps the kids huddled in the marketplace are fascinated to hear about children who would wander off into the forest because that's such a crazy thing that uh, they wouldn't do themselves. But we still tell these stories even now to our kids. Um, So, you know, reflecting as parents, um, yeah, I don't know. Have you told any of the classic nursery rhymes um, uh, and fairy tales uh, that we were told as kids? Uh, you know, any of the traditional European ones. Have you passed any of those on to your kids? Can't recall, but I'd say I probably have. Probably badly too, because you know, I can't really remember them myself. Oh well, I, I mean, I, I know I have. Um, yeah, I've gone through all all of them with the kids. Um, when I went to uh, France a few years back, I I bought a uh, a big book of fairy tales and brought that home uh, and read them to the boys. They insist that I translate it into English, which is uh, becomes homework for me. But um, in any case, we read our way through those, uh, and they're the, you know they're the same stories, but uh, maybe a little a little more dark uh, in the French version, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's 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 a lot of blood and gore and yeah shocking stuff in there, really. Surely you know it reflects uh, the art of the era telling its telling telling its tales. So you know it, it's easy to pick any number of genres of art uh, from our current time, uh, and they painted a dark and. Uh, twisted sense of the way things are, you could equally pick other genres which are light and flippant. You know, if someone was going to look back at the uh, 20, late 20th century and only have romantic comedies to advise them, um, they would have, uh, you know, a, a pretty upbeat view of the world. I mean, imagine if you only understood the world through romantic comedy. <laughs> How disappointing the world would be. Well, I don't. I don't know. I just. I. I feel like. I feel like this could be the plot to a film. Like, how could we have like, just unleash a character into the world who thinks that the world is a romantic comedy, but it's not? Hmm. More on that space. More to ponder. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, so, in any case, I'm... <laughs> so what have you been up to today, man? Uh, uh, preparing for s- some responsibilities with my studies uh, and an upcoming work placement that I have. Um, so yes, uh, a lot of reviewing of literature, uh, policies, that kind of stuff. Uh, it's as boring as it sounds, actually. Um, yeah, that's been the bulk of the day, and yeah, then just brushing up on uh, on uh, s- some finer points for my YouTube channel. I've been learning how to make thumbnails. Apparently that's something I've been missing, the old thumbnail. So there's a science behind it, uh, and I'm not quite there yet. So, um, yeah. Keep going, man. You'll pa- get it. <laughs> my page manager is telling me that um, I have to try harder, but that I'm improving. Hey, nice. it's good. We'll, we'll go for that. So, yeah, learning a new skill there. Um, and That's good. Yeah, just get it. It's an important skill, just, man. I've been assured that it is. Apparently, it's it correlates um, it correlates to your click rate when your video is being recommended in somebody's browser. So, we shall see. Just learning the art and science of it all. Anyway, let's talk about the three little pigs. Where do you, where we're in this world where children have uh, immense freedom, uh, even in the uh, f- fabulous world of the three little pigs, they're not really old enough to be doing anything. They go out without even a proper plan and each decide to build themselves a house, you know, out of the first thing they found that they were looking at. Uh, so pretty much... Uh, I know they're pigs, so we kind of just should be amazed that they can walk and build houses in the first place. They're actually young pigs, um, and kids can identify with them in the story in that sense. Uh, So in this, if you kind of imagine that the the fairy tale or um, folklore world is just one imagined plane of existence, uh, which it pretty well is, um, for any child who listens to all of the stories, they summon them all up into their imagining and they have to project it somewhere. They project it probably into the world around them as they understand it, uh, which is why the forest is so useful because it's, it's this impenetrable um, uh, barrier of wildness uh, that uh, young children who would be uh, most engaged by these stories, um, or even now we tell them to our youngest children, um, for them, it, it could be easy just to imagine all of this happening within the forest. So all of these different stories about one with the talking pigs and one with the talking bears and one with the wolf that can dress up like your grandmother, uh, they become uh, believable within one plane, the story world. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that we have any reason to think that uh, people engaging with the stories four or five hundred years ago had any reason to need to break them up into 
disparate universes in their head, the way that we've learned to do through branding so that we're quite uh, comfortable as consumers to discuss uh, the Marvel universe and the DC universe or the Marvel multiverse. Uh, and uh, don't even get me started on, you know, Doctor Who, because those fans are just uh, another level. <clears throat> but in any case, I digress. Molly, your screen has been black a while. Are you, are you there? Are you still with me? Yeah, just had some kid problems. I see. Yeah, well, never mind. I've been regaling us with tales, as I'm known to do. Continue. Well, I was talking about the three little pigs and the fact that they're pretty well three little kids in that sense, um, and the identifiable uh, character for the child within the story world. And then I was discussing the story world itself being really just one one plane, so that all of the all of these folklorish tales can occur within this place where where the fable occurs. Um, and so in, in that sense, in that story world, anything can be animate if the story so desires it to be. Um, and, you know, if you search around within um, the... T One thing we should acknowledge is that this is... Uh, when we talk about nursery rhymes relevant to our upbringing um, in Australia, um, we're, we're talking about European um, uh, stories, West, stories from Western Europe. Um, that's, that's, that's what's come to us by and large. It's not, it's not to say that we wouldn't have had some examples of um, Indigenous stories uh, in, coming up in our childhood. It's just that we were taught to imagine uh, the fairy tale space um, and probably project it back to Europe, to be honest. Um, you know, uh, there's a sense away and over the seas where that place was, at least in our imagining. And I know that when I, I mean, I was, yeah, I was in my 30s before I got a chance to get uh, across to Europe and see it. And, um, you know, as we're driving around, uh, you know, Germany and uh, Switzerland, France, and uh, seeing castles um, out up on the hills was just an incredible sight, uh, at least for me and several others on the bus. And like, my face was glued to the bus window as we're going past yet another castle. And as you're driving around, there's plenty of them. Um, well, the ruins of castles anyway, up on um, every other hill, it would seem, in certain parts of Europe. Um, to the point where they're just so commonplace for them. But for me to see an actual castle breaking down on the side of a hill, it's like I'm in that story world, uh, you know. Um, it was pretty special. So, so certainly my inner child was excited about that concept of the fact that, look, there, it's a castle on a hill. Like, it's, uh, it's very hard not to stop the bus. I mean, what's really in order is that we can over, everyone got out, made swords and lances out of whatever was appropriate, and immediately had a melee combat. That's that's what you do when you see a castle on a hill, bruh. I that's mean, it. it's not what we did. Instead, I just stuck to the stuck to the window, like there it is, look there, it's back over there. I've got some grainy photos that I took with my camera 
And basically, it's just like there's Green Hill and there's like Grey Blur. And I'm like, looks Joe and the kids, like, look, that's a castle. And they're like, okay, Dad. I guess you had to be there. Yeah, but that's the story yeah. world. So um, well, I'm, I'm just acknowledging that when I talk about. Uh, yeah, when, I, when we talk about those kind of uh, nursery rhymes, they seem to have been brought over uh, from Europe. Um, it's, you know, that's not to say there aren't some um, some great additions that have been made by Australian story writers since, um, but they just, they seem to fall into a, a different genre, a different story world. Uh, I mean, the Australia itself offers a different story world. Um, so, uh, yeah, we've got our own stories that we pop up here. Definitely. Fantasy's drop always best, been my favourite. For example. Oh, yes. Well, drop you desk. know, and yeah. I think pretty sure when Terry Pratchett wrote about, you know, a version of Australia in his Discworld series. Some people got upset about um, him, in, him making the drop bears a real thing. Um, but um, uh, in any case, I digress. Drop bears themselves, yes. A legendary uh, creature that you'll learn about at, at really probably any Australian pub, to be honest. Or if you're walking down through the bush with any Australian. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I'll drop this. Um, yeah, and I suppose uh, in that sense, um, the concept of the wild and the just out of discovery um, persists within myths even into adulthood. Um, uh, so that, um, you know, we have these... Uh, uh, these wonderful creatures who just, you know, we just need a photo to prove like, like Bigfoot or Bunyips. the abominable snow. Bunyips. Yeah. Well, and yeah, that's right. In, in our local context, the, uh, the, uh, the, Yarmiyahu, the, 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 yeah, man. Yes. Uh, so I live in, uh, what's called the Somerset region. And one of the towns in the Somerset region is Kilcoy. Uh, whose local claim to fame is um, a big wooden statue of a bunyip, uh, or a yowie is the other, uh, is the other name um, for the mythological swamp creature who's sort of a bit like a man, but also definitely a monster. Um, you know, so yeah, we have, we have the bunyip or the yowie here. Um, and, the equivalent um, of the Sasquatch yeah, or the Bigfoot. That's right. Yeah, it's 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 that or or the abominable snowman. Um, you know, so we have these we have these uh, creatures who are imagined just outside of the realm of discovery. You know, who live alongside us uh, in in our social imagining, um, even even now. Uh, you know, and you know, in that same category you throw in um uh, extraterrestrial life uh you know it's just outside of our knowledge of discovery we we only just need to see um some evidence to know that that's there um, 
Well, then we need to come back to the Min Min Lights, but that's, uh, in that sense, Min Min Lights is an interesting one because um, uh, they're um, a phenomenon that people experience in um, uh, Central Australia, in desert places, um, certainly in Western Queensland uh, and beyond. Um, and uh, they're lights which appear at night and seem to lure people off course. Uh, and uh, from what I gather, um, uh, First Nations people don't really um, take happily to seeing them. Um, they seem to uh, be an alarming presence. Um, sometimes attributed to ancestors, yeah. Um, but uh, certainly not something that you want to experience. But yeah, these lights, um, it's not known if they're uh, actually seen, um, as in like like when people see the lights, do, do the, is there actual light or are people actually having some sort of neurological um, experience? Uh, and I might not have framed that right, but... Uh, Hypnosis. It, could, it could be that people, yeah, there could be something about the experience that produces a sensation of light for people, or there could genuinely be some light. It could be some species of insect or something that we aren't, you know, really aware of um, yet. Uh, but in any case, yeah, the Min Min lights are certainly um, a phenomenon, but they sort of fit because we're not even sure. Um, of what they are. We're not even like, we're not, we're not sure that it's a creature. I, I feel like well, that's have to into something that a little bit. Into like a supernatural or uh, extraterrestrial or psychological. Well, I don't know. The difficulty with the Min Min lights is I can't consign them to the story world. Um, because I know people who've seen them. Um, and um, so, so in, yeah, it's, it's I, I, I have every reason to believe that they're real. Um, although, yeah, no one can produce a photo of them. It's true. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I guess I've stumbled upon there with the Min Min Lights, a place where uh, even my concept of the hard and fast boundaries between the uh real world and the story world um are intersected because i can't produce any evidence of the min min lights apart from stories but i'm so convinced well, by the stories that i this reminds me of that podcast i shared with you where they were talking about dwarves yeah. oh yes yeah they're discussing the the uh they're discussing the fact that the poor old dwarves were the same in our regular world and the fantasy worlds, uh, apart from the costume. So, um, my point would be, you know, why couldn't you have Min Min lights in the, in the story world? You can have dwarves. It's true. There are crossovers. All right. Well, then in that case, um, certainly... I can allow I can allow for that that we have our min min lights and then the story world has its min min lights. But Australia as as a as a place throws up its own stories. 
<laughs> I mean, in my own schema, I'm not allowing it for anyone else. <laughs> I have to construct a way to move forward in my understanding. Um, otherwise, I'll keep going in circles, try and get on top of that. And that's it. So, Min Min lights can be added to the to the story world, or the dwarves have to be removed. No, 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 no. We can't lose the dwarves. Yeah. Well, you're left with one course of action. Uh, acceding to acceding to Min Min lights. Well, I feel that Australia throws up its own stories, um, and you know, best done in. Uh, consultation and continuation of uh, the narrative um, with First Nations people. There are um, there are stories connected to the land. Uh, my favourite would be the Rainbow Serpent story. I've got a book on my shelf that tells it. Um, yeah, so I, I can't retell it faithfully enough, um, but I'm familiar enough with the, with the story. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, the Rainbow Serpent was definitely in story world for me as a kid uh, yeah i still think that be the australian experience of of growing up here um, but understanding that your people were from somewhere else allows you to construct different imaginings um different worlds because you have to throw your head back to a time where your ancestors lived where they came from and when they lived there they had no idea about this place where you live now hence when you project your mind back into that space, you kind of have to go uh, a little bit willfully ignorant into that space to try and participate in it. That's Just it. a little bit. But I think what we're trying to do here uh, in this conversation is just unpack, actually, just some of the presuppositions embedded uh, in these stories, such as the recurring uh, Jacks, Jack and Jill, and... Um, one What's Jack jumped himself over a candlestick. Well, my mum told me that uh, nursery rhymes were uh, political taunts placed in the mouths of children that could be, you know, chanted in the marketplace without anyone getting thrown into the stocks. So she insisted that they were political. Propaganda tools. So my mum's dead, but when she unpacked that on me, I was five. So I was—I sort of just did a lot of nodding and like, mm, yeah, mm, I don't understand that at all, mum. And uh, to this point, uh, to this day, I prop—I don't properly understand how mum thinks that um, all nursery rhymes are political. But the example she gave me was "Ring a Ring a Rosie," which she insisted. You see, it was about the Black Death, and I'm like, well, but why? Explain to me why. It was political to sing a song about every like. For the listeners who are not aware, we're talking about the bubonic plague, which occurred in uh, Europe, I think, in the 1400s. But you know, don't quote me if I'm wrong. It uh, and and it killed one in five people in Europe, which is a substantial amount of people, uh, if you think about it. Um, like COVID-19, eat your heart out. This thing really. Uh, this was the biz, um, and it, yeah, it knocked it knocked people out. So then uh, there is, or at least was when I was a child, still a chant where we would hold hands and we would all skip around in a circle and sing, ring a ring a rosy, a pocket full of posy, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. 
and then everyone would fall down on the ground. And of course, that's simulating a plague coming through, and we all die. And that was the childhood game that was passed down from our European ancestors um, to remember that once upon a time, that wasn't just a game, that's actually what was happening. Um, it's sort of a macabre dance, but my grandmother insisted that I play ring a ring a rosy when I was a kid, and by the time I get to be an old man, you know what, I'll be walking up to groups of kids teaching them the same morbid dance. Uh, because I was taught it as a kid, and I, and I think, darn it, it's lasted 500 years. This dance will continue. You know what? The Australian rugby league team should do the ring a ring a rosy before their games. You know how New Zealand has the haka? Yeah. We should have I the ring a ring a rosy, man. It'll be a hard sell, but you could give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> Just let let them let the Kiwis do all their go away, and then you just do, and then everyone gets together and does the ring a ring a rosy. You want to see it? Come on, getting on board. Is it going to be the kangaroos, the, boys, the socceroos? Someone needs to get this off the ground. We're just perpetuating our culture. You know, that's just, I mean, otherwise, like, why do they do uh, the national anthems? Like, it's just perpetuating a national story. I'm just saying we've got our stories a little more complex and we could mix it up a bit. Yeah, we could. The, the Kiwis well, are showing us off. They do, they do a dance. Let's see what happens. And they, they get a dance. We don't do a dance. Yeah, you make a good point. Sometimes we do. I, so I, I think that, yeah, yeah. we're on to something. We're going to need some help. Yeah, yeah. What it's come down to is actually, I'm insisting that dance is an essential part of culture. Well, Sometimes you just got to dance. Well. Yeah, you know, we're going to send our, our finest warriors to go compete against someone else. They've they got to do a dance first. Of course, of course. Pocket full of posies, at least. Mm. Yeah, what was the significance Anyway, uh, <clears throat> well... There might be a flower placed on a grave or imbibed by a sick person. I really don't know why a pocket full of posies was important. I think I think that was actually a euphemism for the plague itself, somehow or other. I'm not going to look it up. I guess more research I'll come back. required. Nah, I'll look it up anyway. It's all good. Anyway, uh, we... We ought not have given Jack too much of a hard time. It's wonderful that there was a, a boy named Jack in every village, so there seemed to be a boy named Jack in every story almost. Quite relatable. But maybe uh, maybe one of my favourites out of the canon that we haven't discussed is uh, Tom Thumb. Good old Tom Thumb, man. Like, that dude was cool. Yeah. I'd, Don't you reckon? You'll have to, re- you'll have to remind me. Is he the one that... Oh, Tom Thumb was the kid who was... It, it was the boy who was only as tall as a thumb. Oh. Who was like, the one get around in a matchbox. Um, it might have been Little Jack Horner. He sat in the corner. Yeah, he did. It wasn't Little Miss Muffet. I can't remember what else he did. Stuck in his thumb, pulled out a plum, said, what a good boy am I. That's Little Jack Horner. It was. Yeah. All right, and, and on that note... I think he got stuck in there. We'll have to wrap up this this episode of the sesh, but it's been enjoyable, um, nonsensical, 
and um, <laughs> can't wait for the next time we we have a deeper un- we have a deeper understanding of the western fairy tales Thank you very much.